Hello, I'm Kevin Kittle, and you're listening to The Cinema Files. Netflix has a new feature coming out called The Highwaymen, which tells the story of Bonnie and Clyde's demise through the eyes of the two former Texas Rangers that tracked them down. It's a fascinating and vastly different experience from the 1967 Bonnie and Clyde classic. I and a handful of other journalists sat down and spoke with director John Lee Hancock and writer John Fusco about their unique approach to this story. Uh, What inspired you to share this story? I grew up with a real fascination with outlaws and gangsters. I think you look at my work, you realize that. (laughs) And um, uh, so when, when the 1967 Arthur Penn movie came out, I was in my pajamas at the drive-in with my mother and father, and it just continued to fuel my fascination with, with Bonnie and Clyde. And so I wanted to know everything I could after that movie about them. And, and I remember I had these books that had really, my mother didn't want me to have them because they had graphic crime scene photos, but I was like obsessed. You know? But as I started researching, I realized that, wow, you know what? They're not, they weren't uh, Faye Dunaway or Warren Beatty. And they killed a lot of people, left a lot of victims, and destroyed a lot of lives during the Depression. Along with that, the portrayal of of the antagonist, Frank Hamer, or Hammer, as they called him in the movie, was so far off the mark that it was it was it was troubling to me as, as a young person. And so I started researching Hamer and his life and, and saw that you know, no one ever abducted him and tied him up in the back of a car and spit on him, sexually taunted him, put him in a rowboat and shoved him across a lake. He didn't, he didn't go out and kill them out of revenge for some vendetta. And that in actuality, he was one of the greatest law officers of the 20th century um, who um, had uh, took on the KKK single-handedly, uh, kind of exemplifying that one riot, one ranger ethos. And was like a really cool Western hero to me as a kid. So suddenly here I was, you know, going from the gangster warship to, wow, Hamer kind of got a bad deal in this. And so I grew up waiting for someone to, to do his story on some level. And it never happened. And um, eventually, uh, as I my writing career was going on, it was still in the back of my mind that, you know, um, and it, it wasn't, had nothing to do with a, a corrective or, answer to the Arthur Penn movie, which I have to say, um, I recognize as a watershed film, a, a cultural um, touchstone, and I'm, I'm part of that filmmaking generation who was inspired by it. There's no denying that. But I just felt like, wow, that, that's the side of the story about re- two retired Texas Rangers coming out of retirement to enter the gangster era is a really cool Western and kind of elegiac ride the high country type of story for me uh, for me um you know john was there from the start and wrote it and so i was just reading the script that came to me and being from texas i knew you know some of frank hamer who is the most legendary texas ranger of course knew some about bonnie and clyde um but for me i was just i mean i'm a huge fan of the 67 film um and i watch it all the time uh, but it wasn't so much the Bonnie and Clyde of it for me. I was really drawn to the dark journey of these two men who have a terrible gift, and their gift is they are blood hunters, and they know it's going to be ugly, 
and they know where you know what it's going to look like and what's at the end of the road waiting for them. And there's no one they can talk to, almost like veterans of battle or something. There's no one they can talk to but each other. And um, so it was kind of a men, loving men, these two guys together that drew me in. And I looked at it as, if anything, a companion piece to Bonnie and Clyde. You know, I mean, not to say that you're not aware of it when you're making the film. Of course you are. I mean, you've got one of the more famous you know, cinematic scenes is the ambush in Bonnie and Clyde. And so you approach it and go, what can we do that's different? Not as an answer to it or not as pushback or anything. It's like, no, you, you, you know, you don't want the comparison. You, you can't outdo the operatic ballet of bullets, mm-hmm. you know, which was fantastic. So you go, okay, well, our option is we're going to play it in real time. Nothing's going to be slow-mo. Everything's going to be real. It's going to be brutally violent and it's going to be bloody and it's going to be as promised. It's going to be worse than promised. And so, and then the heavy weight that carries with these guys, there's no joy at the end of this. They walk away with more soil on, you know, on their souls. So anyway, that was, that was what drew me to it was that kind of heavy, dark, lonely journey. I, I think what John recognized in that and, and is what we, you really set out to mine is that this story, the weight that these two guys carry and the things that they've done, and the, the mm-hmm. thing, and the thing they have to do to finish out and that, that, that moral gravitas. Going to the the, the two uh, leads, um, I think John Lee. I think you said that uh, they seem like an old married couple. Maybe I read it in some notes. Yeah, yeah, which which I, I really loved because yeah. um, they because they had a friendship, but then they also worked well together. Right. Um, did um, either of you or both of you have uh, one of those angles? Uh, to uh, to show on the screen more of their friendship or how well they work together and which one was more important or maybe neither one. I was I mean you're always hopeful that you don't have the the thing you don't want to do is like let's flash back to when Maney and Frank were in their twenties in South Texas or something like that. You've got a certain imperative even though I'm the first to recognize that it's not a will they catch them or not we all know what happens. It's about trying to make the journey interesting. Um, so. For me, it was, I was hopeful that when you saw these guys together in the car with the rapport and the dialogue that John's written, that we would understand the legacy of their friendship. Just the fact that Frank drove all the way to Lubbock to see if Maney might be up for the job speaks to that, to me. And then hopefully you can get them on the road and that that would be inherent. Terrific. Uh, one of the things I really loved about the film was how it, how we see Bonnie and Clyde throughout the entire film, and then at the you know at the climax, it, it really resonates on multiple levels because of, of their portrayal visually. Um, what was the inspiration behind that? Like, was it in the script? Did it get developed along the way? It's twofold. Yeah, it was in the script. You know, John said you you know he described it in such a way that you never quite got the look you wanted at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when I came on board. I thought this was an exciting opportunity to have two very different visual styles at play that meet up at the ambush site. And so talking to John Schwartzman, our great DP, I said I wanted to shoot it like a graphic novel. I want all the stuff with Bonnie and Clyde to be highly stylized frames with amazing, beautiful, poppy clothes, uh, shiny cars. I want it to look fast. I want it to look sexy. I want it to do all that. For two reasons. One, because that's how the the public in 1934 thought of them. 
And two, the way I might view the movie if I weren't involved in, with it is, no, I get this. I've seen the I've seen Penn's movie. They are sexy and fat, and the cars are fast and they're amazing and they're beautiful and all that. And then when they enter the naturalistic part of the movie, we stay with Frank and Manny through more of a naturalistic style. When they enter it and they pull up and we get a good look at their face, they're scrawny kids. So on the one hand, the public in 1934 has been duped that we've come across. And, you know, and hopefully the audience has been duped as well, saying I, it's not what I expected. And there's also, and it's not like, ha ha, gotcha, pull the rug out. It's more of a, to me, it's like, this is just everything about this enterprise is ugly. And now I've got to kill kids mm. on top of So the film deals pretty closely with um, sensationalizing violence and how the fact that papers reporting constantly on Bonnie and Clyde's escapades was sort of making them into small town heroes. Um, and I, if, unless I'm reading your movie wrong, the movie sort of implicitly condemns that, the sensationalizing of Bonnie and Clyde's violence. Um, well, go ahead and finish your question. Yeah, of course. And so you've also talked about how these men, and the movie touches on this too, they are also murderers. They've done some pretty terrible, bloody things. Um, and there's a moment in the film where one of them rejects an interview with the newspaper about their killing of Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, but now you've made a movie about them. Do you think that this film runs the risk of sensationalizing the violence that these men carried out? I, it, it, it doesn't bother me. One, I would take exception to calling them murderers mm-hmm. as a blanket statement, because, you know, if you're an officer of the law and there's a person shooting it and you shoot them, that didn't come into the definition. Legally they were known as man- manhunters. Yeah, I mean, they were manhunters. They're going after a bad guy, and the bad guy has this. And, you know, and you could go case by case with a hundred different files, maybe, and find, and maybe find something. I'm not disagreeing because I'm not a historian. Mm-hmm. I think calling them blanket murderers is 100% incorrect. Well, I was referring legally. to the story. Well, yeah, legally. Yeah. I was referring to the stories of when they would, when the story that has a big dramatic speech is when they talk about how they yes. broke into a place and shot a bunch of people before yes. they, could, they could put their hands well, up. So deep, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, some exactly. might see that as unethical and more murder than punitive justice. I, I would go with it being un, unethical and and certainly a gray area. And mm-hmm. in, in that time and place, it was unfortunately more commonplace than you know than one would think. Um, yeah, did are, did they come to this story without flaws, without demons, without their own stuff? No, they don't. They are they are they are dust dusted up there's no doubt about it mm-hmm. um, they're not they're not perfect human beings and i think that's part of that journey we're talking about is this stuff that they regret yeah you know and i think that story candelaria is a is you know a prime example it's like maybe we could have handled that differently now granted they killed some of our men and they were firing at us for two days mm-hmm. maybe we could have handled that differently and i think that is what the story is kind of about the burden you carry with that terrible gift so I, w- I would agree that, yes, this is not a, this is not, these aren't completely righteous men doing the right thing. They are doing kind of what they think is necessary. Even the governor thinks that their style of doing things is not mm-hmm. PC, even though that wasn't a term in 1934. It's mm-hmm. a really thoughtful question. Yeah, it is. The, the um, you know, I think for two years, but, you know, Barrow and Parker were out there um, killing uh, you know, it, it, when when the law tried to do legal roadblocks, 
and get them to surrender. And a lot of that was, you know, there's a, a woman with them, there's even a girl with them. Um, these law officers were killed. They had 3,000 rounds of armor-piercing ammunition in the damn car. When they found it. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, you know, had, had, you know, three Browning automatic rifles fully loaded, 10 uh, Colt automatic pistols, three loaded shotguns, uh, other handguns. It was like, I always described it as, it was kind of, a runaway train with hazardous materials that had to be had to be stopped. Hoover and a one thousand man dragnet for two years was not able to catch them, and it got to the point where we've got to go into a dark place and bring out two guys, mm-hmm. um, you know, who come from another era, who come from this the old time ranger school, and so, uh, but but uh, it is interesting because yeah, Hamer was he was very. He was, he was a humble, quiet guy who did not want to talk about the stuff and mm-hmm. turned down Tom Mix, a movie author, turned down $10,000 for a book deal. And, and, I, and I think the reason, I mean, I don't know this to be true, but in my heart and mind, I think the reason that Frank Hamer took on a job that he didn't, he didn't need the money, why did he take this on? And I think it galled him. And I think they were more than small town heroes. They were national heroes and in international press. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it galled him that people were were being made famous for things they should be ashamed of. He was an old school guy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what put him behind his wife's car. <laughs> yeah. The wheel, of his, the wheel of his wife's car to go out because he didn't need the money. And maybe that's an old fashioned sense of right and wrong, but I think that's kind of who Frank Hamer was. And and did he always do right? Nope. You know, they're like like it says in the in like Ma Ferguson says in the movie, you know, it's like They left they, me to Yeah, they leave me to answer for the blood. Yeah, they get the bad guy, but it ain't pretty. Yeah. So it's the whole thing's an ugly enterprise, which is why at the end of the movie the the thing I wanted really to have come across and why we shot in the actual location it wasn't just because it was authentic and cool and creepy and all that which it was it was that there was a sense it was a pervasive sense over the crew and the actors that kind of helped them recreate it one the anxiety and here they come here they come here they come and i'm gonna i'm gonna keep firing until my gun is empty it's overkill there's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it i'm because it's this over and over and over. And the other thing is that when that car comes to a stop, I mean, there's no joy in Mudville. It's not like we got him who mm-hmm. at all. And that's by all the reports, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's done and I'm glad it's done. And it was worse than I thought it would be. And then as bad as that is, then to see what happens in Arcadia, which by the way, is toned down in the movie. There mm-hmm. were thousands more people. They were trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. And his ear, they cut off locks of her hair. Dipping, they loved her when they dipping they, hand, handkerchiefs in Bonnie's blood, putting it in the taking off. pieces of the car. Uh, it was grotesque, <laughs> and so you know they loved him when they were alive. They loved him when they were dead. Would that be the start of a revolution, um, Bonnie and Clyde's efforts and their response? Was it revolutionary in terms of how? Um, the public perceived what they were doing and how the public perceived what your characters, um, Woody Harrelson and Kevin Costner, were doing to try and stop them. 
Revolutionary in what way? Just from a police tactic standpoint? Yeah, um, the, the, way, the way we respond to things. You know, social media today, something's instantly on there and the right. world reacts, right? right? Back then, you probably had to wait two or three days before you read something about what was going on. And yet, you know, as you just pointed out, there were thousands of people who were cheering and crying uh, over their deaths and mm-hmm. celebrity right, mm-hmm. status. Um, their reaction to the uh, law enforcement side of it was very dark um, and was very unprincipled. And yet they were both men of moral uh, conviction. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think that signaled a change in the way that I think about their tactics and mm-hmm. how we react to things. So, I don't know. It, it's an it's an interesting the legacy of the ambush and everything is, you know, we could fill this room with historians and they all disagree about everything. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> uh, about every single thing. But um, the fact that the posse, the six of them, decided never to talk about it and no one could write about it until the last person. You know, everybody was gone except for the last person. And, you know, and who knows how much to believe of what came out or whatever, but we do know that the the Parker family and the Barrow family were very open in public and invited everybody in. They, know, they toured. They to toured with. They with toured with a guy the named Doctor Doctor uh, the Crime Doctor. Yeah. Who bought the death car oh, and wow. went on tour with it with Bonnie Parker's mother Emma and Henry Barrow, you know, Mister Barrow, who had little cut up little patches of Clyde's trousers that he was killed in that he'd sell. And they, they traveled, they toured with the car. Huh. There's a funny letter from uh, from Bonnie's mom, right, uh, about to Frank Hamer saying, those guns weren't stolen, they're, they're our property, you must return them. <laughs> <laughs> He's, yeah, right. They were stolen from an armory. But it's, it's, and I don't know if it, it's, it's a great question. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm if I I don't grasp, think I grasping it right. But public sentiment did start to turn. Yeah. Um, you know, at Grapevine, Texas, Easter morning, April 1st, we're approaching that anniversary. Those two patrolmen on motorcycles who came up. One, it was his first day on the job, and he kept his shotgun shells in his pocket, which we referenced. But he, he did that because he was afraid if he took a spill on his bike, the gun might inadvertently kill somebody, an innocent person. So he had to try to get his shells in the gun. He was scheduled to be married. Uh, two weeks later, and his widow wore her wedding gown to his funeral. And so those stories started to leak. Little by little, the public started to feel like, yeah. well, wait a minute. I mean, my mother remembers her Scottish immigrant father, my grandfather, being obsessed with True Detective magazine and following the Scott. It was like a soap opera. And she remembers the day where he goes, oh, yeah, they, they got Clyde and Bonnie. They got him. And it was like, a, it was like oh, my God, really? They're, yep, they his, his lovers on the run. I think you're right. I think they had a, a good two year run when Hoover was chasing them to no avail. Um, you know where their popularity was high, and I think Grapevine kind of was that last chapter where all of a sudden they go, "Wait a minute, yeah, man." I don't know. That's the other thing that you know the victims. We really no one ever talks about about the, these victims. You know the, the Native American full-blooded Chickasaw who had worked so hard to become a deputy sheriff in a white town and had a family. 
and um, Clyde killed him, a 30 caliber rifle. And um, uh, all the families who had been, been left on the breadline, the children raised without fathers during the Depression, and who had to, to endure, had to watch this celebrity. Like, you know, I'm a young man, and I've got to go to work because my dad's been killed by these two who everybody's glamorizing. So there was, there was sort of a growing, a groundswell where, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, who are these, who are these two? Um, did you purposely add, um, I think it was the hammer waving at the FBI plane and at Hoover? Because Hoover kind of only really got involved when something was um, um, successful. Yes. And so he I mean, that was my, my intention in the, in the script, yeah. And, you know, um, the uh, Hoover, Hoover re really resented Frank Hayden and resented the fact that he was on the case. There were other FBI, and they weren't the FBI at that point. It was like the fledgling FBI, which just like the birth right at the beginning. Um, there were other, you know, FBI on the ground who, who did recognize that, you know, we've got a real pro out there. He might be old school, but um, Hoover, Hoover resented him. And resented the fact that, you know, it took him two years, for two years, he couldn't get him. And this guy went out using Comanche tracking skills and, and caught them. Um, but what really got, got under his skin was that uh, something came up in, 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 the, in the press. And it was like, you know, they still, you know, Dillinger's still out there and nobody's got him. And Hamer said, well, if Mr. Hoover would like to have a conversation about that. And, um, you know, so Hoover was really he didn't like he that. didn't like him. <laughs> I was wondering, uh, with the onset of this creative process, uh, were you setting out to make more of a dramatic <clears throat> feature or more of an action? We both probably had. I don't know if our answers are the same, but go ahead. No, I mean it's a, a dramatic, definitely the the drama. You know. Um, it was really when it comes down to it, you know, it's that, and I, I say like ride the high country, you know, that kind of elegiac story of, of, of two men who, you know, time has passed by, um, who are carrying the moral weight of things they, they have done and, and something that they have to do. That was really the, the, the guts of it. It's certainly for me the drama because, again, we know the outcome. There's no like, are we going to win the big game or not? We know historically what happened. So you hope that you can make the journey interesting enough and about something else thematically um, so that it's entertaining. Um, yeah, I mean, there was never, you know, um, <clears throat> it's, 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 you know, it's not an actioner. Um, and I think we've, we've committed to that, to telling the story, you know, on its own terms. And it's, it's like I was quite taken with the idea, like John said, that, if, you know, that it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys know the movie Lonely Are the Brave, which is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. But it's just the, it's, it's just the idea of a guy born 100 years too late. And that's Frank Hamer. He's from a different time. And everything that's noble about that and everything that's bad about that. I had two questions, but I'll go to the one because you just sparked something. Um, Frank was a tracker, mm -hmm. right? And yes. and and I love. I can barely operate my phone. 
<laughs> right? And and he's and he's saying, okay, she's walking with a limp and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Is is that a lost art in police work or with the Rangers today, or is that well, is that still in practice? Because I find I find those types of things just fascinating. Yes, I, as as do I. I study tracking. It's like a real passion of mine. And um, the uh, and Hamer was was a guy who um, he studied with with the Comanche and really really appreciated that that, that skill. And a lot of the old time Rangers did. Um, <clears throat> it it doesn't re- it only exists in, in one law enforcement area right now, and that's that's a group at the border, which is a all a Native Native American. Uh, patrol called the Shadow Wolves, and they they use traditional tracking methods, and so they they work with they they train border patrol and, and federal officers in using those those old tracking methods. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading in the in the notes, and it says uh, you've, you've always been fascinated. To quote you, it says uh, particularly what's under the veneer of myth and folklore, and I've seen that in a lot of your screenplays. Um, Highwaymen, obviously, Thunderheart and Young Guns, even like the way that Billy the Kid's portrayed, another mm-hmm. folk hero almost that's portrayed a little more accurately. Um, what drives that for you as a writer? Is it just pure curiosity? Do you dig into it or are you always kind of looking to? I think it goes back to the, the first story I told about being a kid and, and being <clears throat> fascinated by Billy the Kid, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. I used to sit and like stare at those photos and say, like, how did, you know, how did this Billy the Kid, this diminutive, you know, um, little bucktooth uh, outlaw um, in in New Mexico, how did he rise to this this iconic level? How did that happen? How did, and and why were there forty two movies made about him? And where did this legend of the left handed gun come from? And, fact that he was this lone gunfighter who whistled sad ballads you know and and i always loved what i found was if you dig underneath the veneer of the legend you find that the, the history it could be a lot uglier and more crude but it's, it's always more fascinating and then to to explore how how that history becomes myth and why and i think that really applies to this movie are there any other stories that you're itching to tell oh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yep. Oh, yep. Have some coming up. <laughs> Keep me posted. <laughs> so some of the towns that they drive through in this film are obviously very poor. Um, there are a number of establishing shots sort of sort of showcasing the destitution that people are living in. Um, and a lot of people who celebrated the even the criminal and violent acts of Bunny and Clyde saw them as sort of like the common man's hero because, and I think someone in the movie has a line about um, a bank, about how they hate the banks, banks and so they're glad. Banks, banks, banks of the devil. Yeah. Well, and yeah. also he says they rob banks, banks rob for me, essentially. Right, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of people saw them as sort of like, you know, they're, they're hitting back at the establishment that's been screwing us over. Um, what were you intending to try to convey by showing how poor these towns were? Um, while also demonstrating how horrible the crimes of Bonnie and Clyde were, because there's sort of a um, there's sort of a disconnect between you know they're they're robbing from the people that are hurting us, but they're also hurting other people. I think I think that they were kind of given a little bit of a of a pass because hatred was so great for the banks, and that was 
the overriding feeling. It's like, you know, the farms, the stores, your houses, the banks are taking them all. Everybody's hurting. They want them to be Robin Hood, mm-hmm. even though they're not, they're taking from the rich, but they're not giving to the poor. They're just Robin, not Robin Hood. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but you, you, you need a hero when you're in that, in that yeah. deep, dark, it's deep, of- dark place. You want a hero and you want somebody who's going to strike out at the man. And I think in some ways that's, there's a little of the Penn movie in that too, in terms of the sixties with the Vietnam war and all that, you go, can somebody please do something about this? Can somebody lash out at the man for me? And I think, you know, that's certainly what a lot of people felt about the Penn movie, but yeah. Ahead. And then I, I think that the, the, the lovers on the run element was oh. that really appealed, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> to the people. Um, and, and Bonnie and Clyde, you know, they they played into it and they, they kind of saw this and they were kind of acting out a sick fantasy of being movie stars. Bonnie wanted to be a Broadway star. Mm-hmm. Clyde wanted to be a, a famous musician. It was almost like if we can't be famous, we're going to be notorious. And they were they were very aware. And, and like John has said before, they were branding before branding. And if they had Instagram, they would have been on. They'd have a lot of followers. Yeah, right. tweeting every right. day, right. more than Trump. Yeah. <laughs> and but, I think, but another thing is like like Dillinger at the time saw himself as like a John Gotti. You know, he was he felt he had class, and that. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, I don't know a whole lot about Dillinger, but he saw himself as a bona fide Robin Hood, and that he was he was robbing big hardcore banks. And he was feeding money back to people. And so he would write to papers and say, please don't mention Bonnie and Clyde in the same article with me. <laughs> you know, th- those, th- those are, you know, pint-sized punks who are just like killing, ga- you know, gas station attendants. It's like a Twitter war between R and B artists. Or <laughs> but the disconnect to your point, I think there was a disconnect. I mean, mm-hmm. they, but they were willing to overlook part of it. And I think part of it was the fact that initially it was all police officers. And I think they were kind of grouped in with the man, even though the police officers at this time was the guy down the block who, by the way, had to carry his own gun and drive his own car. There were no official cars. Um, yeah. And also, but, but talk, I mean, you, you, you actually, I love when you talk about why they were in the press because of the depression. That All anybody wanted to read was. The, the, the newspapers, the circulation was plummeting. During the Depression, newspapers were going under and publishers were like, okay, what's going on? People did not want to read about depressing economic news. They were interested in three things, sports heroes, movie stars, and flashy gangsters. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that's, that's, you know, that's what was getting, getting the ink. Bonnie and Clyde, you know, they, they really played into that. Bonnie always referred to her public. I don't want my public to think that I smoke cigars. So please let them know that that cigar, that I, I just took Clyde cigar and I was posing for the shot, but I, I only smoke Campbell's. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's really, really uh, an incredible story. One of the things that struck me about the story structure uh, was you started their journey together um, in the gun store. And then you end, I think, that segment before we get into the actual ambush uh, at the end, 
with William Sadler's soliloquy and Kevin Costner's reaction to that. I found that that book ended their journey exceptionally well because you see both characters being disillusioned at the beginning that they're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And at the end, there's that moral conviction that says, you're going to kill my son, even though he's a good person, you're going to kill my son because it's the right thing to do. And I thought that that was a, a nice opus to the, the end of the film before we get into the ambush. It gives a brand new imperative to Frank's, you know, journey. Yeah. Because before, it's just we've got to get him off the road before they kill other people. And, and it's almost like when, when Bill Sadler surprises, it was like, do it for me, do it for my family. It's like, it's just yet another thing that he's carrying with him. It's like, boy, it's, it's, everybody's hurting. This has got to end. I would not be surprised if Hamer had met with Mr. Barrow. He was, Frank was very, very protective of his sources, who he talked to, how he operated. And that follow-up, that conversation in Arcadia, where, where Mr. Barrow came to him and said, you know, just I completely understand, you know, what, what this, you know, what had to be done. And this had to be ended, and I do not hold it against you. Um, so, you know, there's, it's possible that they... It almost seems like people that have at least crossed paths. And, and knowing how Frank operated, I mean, he left no stone unturned. He took his time. You know, he, he would you know, go into, into a community, try to talk to the people, try to be reasonable, try to bring a, 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 a peaceful close to it. That's really what he wanted more than anything. Get them to surrender, and the more he learned, you know that that you know with them being you know always showing up to these like roadblocks that went wrong. It's, that's what was happening. It's like, you know, um, they're not going to, and and they not made, Bonnie and Clyde made it very clear: we are not, we're not going to surrender. We're, you know, we'll you know we're, we'll go down together. That's what they said. And so, and hey, and, and you know, I think it's. Beautiful scene that John captured with, with young Ted Hinton and saying, you know, when when Hamer says they're afraid to shoot the girl, and that's what's giving Clyde that that second he needs to get the drop. In a lot of ways, you know, it was I think kind of we have this romanticized love story, but you know, he had this he knew he had this girl with him that was get sit by sit close to me, honey. Well, good questions. Great questions, guys. Thank you. Really nice to meet you. Thank you.